This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can catch brand new episodes every Thursday or simply subscribe to ensure you get regular updates to your podcast feed. Today we travel back to the Tudor period as we put your questions to English Heritage's experts. And on the panel today are our two guests. Hello, I'm Amy Boyington and I am a senior properties historian. Hello, I'm Roy Porter and I'm a senior properties curator. Let's sketch out some basics about the Tudors then. Katie.eqx or underscore.eqx on Instagram wants to know what period did the Tudor era span, Amy? The Tudor era spanned 118 years. It um, began in 1485 with Henry Tudor. He defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth, and so he then became Henry VII. And the Tudor era ended with his granddaughter Elizabeth I in 1603. Who, of course, he never met. No, that's true. Okay, let's move on to another one for Roy here. It's from Young underscore Preservationist. And also from just underscore Dave82, they're both on Instagram, and are curious to know where the name Tudor comes from, but it kind of was hinted at in Amy's last answer, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. The name is Welsh, that's the first thing to say. It's a Welsh name. The Tudors are a really a Welsh gentry family, originally from northwest Wales, although Henry VII, who we just heard about, was born in South Wales at Pembroke. And if you're wondering how Tudor became the name of an English royal dynasty. Well, it's down to the fact that Owain ap Tudor married the widow of Henry V, the Dowager Queen Catherine. And there was a slightly scandalous marriage, actually, sort of a secret marriage, but they, they had two sons, Edmund and Jasper Tudor, and they were half-brothers to King Henry VI. So they're in the Lancastrian affinity. And Edmund married Lady Margaret Beaufort, and she's important because her great-great-grandfather was King Edward III. And it was through that line that her son, Henry Tudor, was able to claim the English throne. But why did the name stop? That's a question from Auntie Karen, LOL, (laughs) which you can't help laughing at, via Instagram. Amy. The Tudor era ended with Elizabeth I, as I mentioned, and that was because she didn't have any children. So she never married and she famously lived as the Virgin Queen. And that resulted in the end of the Tudor dynasty. So the throne then passed to her nephew, who was James VI of Scotland, and then he became James I of England upon her death. Moving on to another question from Instagram, we've got Jenny's Threads, who's asking... Were the Tudors originally Welsh? But uh, Roy, you sort of covered that in your previous answer, didn't you? I did, yeah. I mean, we can go a little bit further. They they, they were originally Welsh. And when Henry Tudor, the future Henry VII, invades this country in 1485, he invades via Wales. He, 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 He rouses support from his homelands, so to speak. The interesting thing about the Tudors, of course, is that despite their Welsh origins on their paternal side, They weren't too keen to make a lot of fuss about that. They were far more interested in talking about, for obvious reasons, their descent from Edward III through the mother of Henry VII. And so, I mean, one of the interesting things about the Tudors is that they almost never refer to themselves as the Tudors. 
know, we talk about Tudor England, don't we? Yes, we do. In Tudor England in the 16th century, that's a phrase you'd almost certainly never have heard of. Instead, if you had the honour of talking to Henry VII or Henry VIII or to Edward VI, Mary I or Elizabeth I, they would be talking about their glorious ancestry and the fact that the ascension of Henry VII had resulted in the unification of the various parts of the royal family. The name Tudor is something which tended to get dropped out of the way because ultimately the Tudors weren't that important. You know, they were, as I say, a gentry family from Wales. Why focus on them when you have this glorious inheritance from the Plantagenet past? So it's only really with history and the way that records have been referred to by historians that we now refer to it as the Tudor period, Tudor England, etc., etc. Yeah, I, I mean, it's been referred to that sort of almost colloquially since at least the 18th century. And in fact, for anybody who's interested in this, there's a really good article by a late historian called C.S.L. Davis called something like Tudor, what's in the name? And he was the person who first pointed this out, that it, when you look at all the official documentation of the 16th century, you hardly ever see the name Tudor within there. Interestingly, Richard III referred to Henry Tudor as Henry Tudor, but then he, there, Richard III is trying to portray Henry as, you know, as low-born essentially. But you know, once, yes. once he becomes king, you know, Henry VII wants to you know, big up his royal antecedents, and that doesn't include the Tudor family, really. It sounds as though, from what you're saying as well, that uh, Henry Tudor and the Tudors in general were more interested in being associated with England rather than Wales. Am I reading something into that? Or? Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, when you think about royal progresses and things, you know, you think about the, the classic progresses of Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, for example. They don't really go into Wales. You know, they're, they're, they're concentrating in the southeast of England and, and, and the home county, so to speak. They occasionally go to the north in the case of Henry VIII. So Wales doesn't really get a look in in that sense. It's not part of the... I mean, I don't know if Amy agrees with this, but I, I wouldn't say it was part of their sort of... Um, they didn't spend a lot of mental energy thinking about their Welsh ancestry or, or about their Welshness. I mean, what do you think, Amy? Yeah, I agree. I feel like they didn't really identify it with that, it that much at all. It was all about England at that time. And then they were looking you know, forward and trying to consolidate their dynasty. So yeah, I agree. Just following on from that, we'll wrap up this sort of aspect in a sec. But do you think the Welshness part is actually taught in schools in Wales uh, as part of Welsh history? Uh, do you know about anything to do with that? Is it talked up? I, I really don't know, Charles, is, is the honest answer. No, it's just, I think it's just a really interesting point, isn't it? Because the Welsh language is now very much part of the curriculum in Wales and you'd expect perhaps some key figures from history to sort of be reclaimed by the Welsh as a result of those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the point is, yeah, it was a Welsh king of England, wasn't it? You know, that's what, what Henry VII was. And I suppose there is one legacy, thinking about it, which Henry VII brought to him. That's the fact that the Red Dragon formed part of the royal arms. You know, the Red Dragon of Wales, you know, the old emblem of the Britons, so to speak. But I think that, you know, what Henry VII and Henry VIII tended to do more often was to point to people like King Arthur, legendary leaders of the past, rather than to their, their Welsh antecedents. Well, that wraps up a lot of interesting threads about Henry VII for Jenny's threads, who asked that question. So thank you, Jenny. We'll move on to some other aspects of Henry VII. Harry Langford from Facebook is curious to know about Henry VII's relationship with his son, Henry, who would become Henry VIII, of course. Did they get on well after the death of Henry VII's older brother, who people might not know about, Prince Arthur, Roy? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. It sort of raises one of those points where you you want to say at the outset, you really wish there was more 
information available about a question like this, more sources available to us to explore the sort of the personal relationship between some of these people. We rely very often on ambassadors' accounts, for example, which you know, give a partial view because obviously they only see a certain aspect of a relationship and where you don't have lots of letters written between people or descriptions of the intimacies of court life, which is the case here, it can be difficult to reconstruct precisely um, or even approximately the relationship between two key figures. And that's, in a sense, quite interesting, isn't it? We're talking about a king and a future king, and it can still be difficult to get inside their lives. Um, but we can have a go. We can have a go. And for those of people who haven't heard of Prince Arthur, he was Henry VII and Elizabeth of York's first child, or first son. And you know he was the future, as far as uh, Henry VII was concerned. And he married a Spanish princess, Catherine of Aragon, and he was sent off to Ludlow, essentially to uh, head up a council in Ludlow, regional government there in the, in the western part of England, the Welsh marches. And he died very shortly after arriving in 1502. And of course, to say the obvious, that was you know one of the critical moments in Henry VIII's life, to the point which he becomes heir to the throne. And it actually it fundamentally changed the relationship with his father, as far as we're aware, because up until then, the future Henry VIII appears to have been brought up away from his father, mostly at the royal nursery, surrounded by more women than men. But once the future Henry VIII, Prince Henry, represents the survival of the Tudor dynasty, Henry VII draws him into his, into his household. He becomes extremely protective of him. You know, to a modern point of view, he's arguably overprotective. And he keeps Prince Henry under his close supervision. And, yeah, I was mentioning ambassadors' accounts. One of the classic accounts of Prince Henry's upbringing is given by a Spanish ambassador who talks about how the prince was effectively kept in an apartment next to the king's, and access to that could only be gained via the king's own chamber. And yet he even goes as far as to say that the the restraint on Prince Henry was, was the same as you would place on a young girl. And interestingly, later in Henry VIII's reign, a courtier reminisces about Henry VII's time in, with, with Prince Henry, and he claims that the king had no affection for his heir. So there's a, there's, there's a suggestion that you know he's being kept under close control, and yet at the same time there isn't a close loving relationship. But what we you know, a counter case can be presented here. We we know that Henry VII went to great effort to place Prince Henry at the heart of court events and court ceremonial. And you could say that you know he took a personal interest in Henry's training for kingship by ensuring that he had a good education. But I think one of the big problems they would have had in terms of bonding, to get back to the original question, is it's clear that they had very different personalities. So you have the apparent coldness of the father contrasting with this, the ebullience of Prince Henry. And what's really interesting, I think, is that we know that when Prince Henry's mother died, he was upset. He actually talks about being upset about the death of his mother in letters. But you don't, or at least no evidence has survived to suggest that Henry VIII was very personally upset at the death of his father. And when he becomes king, one of the things he does is to, to repudiate the style of government of his father, which is very interesting. You, you might think if there's a close relationship, he might at least try to carry on that government for a while. But actually, he, he goes hell-bent for leather on a sort of a popularity move and repudiates the policies of his father, arrests and executes two of his father's chief ministers as well. So, you know, there's a very definite sort of shift 
when Henry becomes king. Perhaps that's reflecting a difference in, in, in their personalities as well. But it is interesting. I'll just finish with this. It is interesting. In the 1530s, at Whitehall Palace, Henry had painted a life-size mural of himself and Jane Seymour. And standing behind them was Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. And so you know, there must be a sense in which Henry VII's legacy shadows Henry VIII's you know, to the extent that there's this portrayal of his father on the wall. Well, I think it was the Privy Chamber at Whitehall Palace. So effectively with Henry VIII, the spare became the heir. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the spare becomes the heir. Yeah. And Prince Arthur, how did he die? Well, we're not entirely certain how he dies. There are various um, slightly scurrilous suggestions at the time when he's at Ludlow. He, 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 as I say, he dies within a very, a very short while of getting married. And some people say, you know, suggest he was sort of overexerting himself and all the rest of that sort of thing. Unfortunately, we just don't know is the honest answer. And unless at least you've read anything about this, Amy. No, like generally it's said that he died of the sweating sickness but mm. that's always that's applied to so many different deaths isn't it so it's hard yeah. to know what that was really yeah okay so it's, a good, it's a good catch all the sweating sickness isn't yes, it exactly the other thing that you've mentioned roy which i think is really interesting and would surprise a lot of people is that prince arthur and henry the eighth shared the same wife catherine of aragon the spanish princess that's quite weird to modern listeners, isn't it? It does seem quite weird, doesn't it? This is all to do with international relations, really. So Henry VII wants to have an alliance with the ruling families in Spain. Catherine of Aragon is the daughter of Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella Castile. And she is a great prize as far as Henry VII is concerned. And by marrying his eldest son, Prince Arthur, to Catherine... He is sure that you know that in the future the two countries will be allied, and what happens is with with Arthur's death, his sort of uh, plans for this, this is an anachronistic term. His foreign policy plans are thrown into disarray, aren't they? Because now he he has another son who's going to be king. He has Catherine of Aragon in this country. Well, what can he do? Well, what he decides to do initially, at least, is to arrange for Prince Henry to marry Catherine of Aragon in the future. And in fact, they were betrothed, and Catherine stayed. In this country. And then relations between Henry VII and Ferdinand became rather difficult. And Henry VII decided to almost renege on his promise. I mean, basically, Catherine is left waiting in this country. And uh, Henry is told to essentially to repudiate his betrothal to Catherine. And what's really fascinating is that in 1509, when Henry becomes king, becomes King Henry VIII, one of the first things he does is to put that all to one side and to renew the relationship with Spain and to marry his brother's widow. And we're told that it was a love match, that he, he married her out of love. It was very definitely a political match as well. You know, for all the reasons I've just mentioned, it, it made sense in terms of international relations. But of course, what we know, and he didn't, and Catherine didn't know at the time, was it was going to have incredible repercussions a couple of decades later when Henry was still on the search for a son, because it's, that's the reason why Henry could claim that he wasn't actually married to Catherine of Aragon. He could claim that by marrying his brother's widow, he had married against God's law. And we may talk about that a little later on. Moving on to some questions now about the reign of King Henry VIII and the way that he dealt with perceived traitors and enemies. 
What drove Henry VIII to act with such cruelty? Asks Montse Ferreres via Instagram, who sounds, I think, Spanish. <laughs> what do you think, Roy? Oh, gosh. I mean, this is such an interesting but huge question, isn't it? To answer it, you'd have to go to the heart of Henry VIII's psychology. And let's be honest, that could be the subject of a whole number of podcasts in its own right. We could do a whole series of these just trying to understand you know, what made Henry VIII tick, what made him think. And I think we, we can all think of examples of his cruelty, be it the, you know, the treatment of his wives, the disposal of former chief ministers, the execution of once close friends, that sort of thing. And the thing to say at the outset, I suppose, is that the cheap and easy answer would be to say that he wasn't a nice person. He was extremely selfish. And I actually think that's probably true, but that is the cheap and easy answer. I think we've got to dig a little bit more deeply here. And if Henry were with us, if he were part of this podcast, I suspect that he would explain that the way he acted was really to defend his position and his dignity. And not only that, he acted in the way he did because he thought he was right to do so. Now, it's important to say that you know, Henry is one of those people who has a very self-serving conscience. And he easily convinces himself that his self-interests are justified. So bear that in mind. But I think there are three things, three considerations, which in particular shaped his apparent cruelty, okay? So there's dynastic insecurity. There's a conviction that he had re-established rightful power for the crown and a fear that unless he protected his legacy, all that he achieved might have been lost. So I'm going to try and explain what I mean by those things. So if we start with the dynastic insecurity, you remember from what Amy was saying that the Tudors are a new reigning family, basically. So they haven't been around for very long. Henry VII has won the throne. Henry VIII is the next king. Just a generation earlier, he had the Wars of the Roses, and that demonstrated how the fortunes of kings and their families could change overnight, could change in battle, could change because of politics. And Henry VIII is keenly aware of multiple people who have competing claims to the throne. And of course, Henry VII had been aware of that as well. So some of the cruelty, or the apparent cruelty of Henry VIII's reign, is a continuation of Henry VII's policies of making sure that people who might be perceived as having a claim to the throne are basically dealt with, if you like, or they are no longer a threat. And so there's, there's a good example of this. There's a guy called Edmund Delapole, okay? And you might not have heard of him, but he was a nephew of Richard III and Edward IV. And he was imprisoned by Henry VII. So when Henry VIII became king, he was in the Tower of London. He just languishes in the Tower of London. When Henry VIII goes to war in France in 1513, one of the things he does is to have Edmund Delapole taken out of prison and executed. And to our eyes, that sounds awfully cruel, doesn't it? Keeping this guy in prison and executing him on a charge of treason. Well, from Henry's point of view, what he's doing is making sure that whilst he's out of the country, there's nobody back in England who might become a sort of a figurehead for revolt against Tudor rule. So from his point of view, that makes entire sense. And then when you move later into his, into his reign, into the 1530s and 1540s, he's considering not only himself, but also his son, Edward. Because as, as you know, Henry's reign goes into the 1540s, I think it becomes increasingly obvious that there's a real high likelihood that Edward will become king at a young age. And Henry wants to make sure that his son is in the most secure position as possible. And he's a very suspicious person, is Henry VIII. And one of the last acts of his reign is to have executed the son of the Duke of Norfolk, the Earl of, of Surrey. And one of the reasons for that appears to be that the Earl of Surrey had displayed the royal arms in his badge. You know, and to Henry VIII's suspicious mind, here's somebody with you know, royal blood in his veins, potentially 
being a threat to his son. So that's the first thing. There's all this dynastic insecurity, okay? But there's another thing. Which is, this is what gets even more interesting because the way in which Henry solves his dynastic problems is famously by making himself supreme head of the English church. And to us, that's a revolutionary move. But the way Henry justified it was by saying, it's a restoration of my rightful authority. English kings in the past are heads of the church, and their authority has been usurped by the bishops of Rome. People have called themselves popes. And as far as he's concerned, what he would call the establishment of true religion and this massive enhancement of royal authority, those things were the great achievements of his reign. That's what he wants to be remembered for. That's what he wants to pass on as well, okay? Now, the problem is that achieving that wasn't just a political issue, but it was also a moral and religious one. It means for many of his subjects, there are questions of conscience and the conviction that what he was doing was just plain wrong. But on the other hand, Henry is utterly convinced of his righteousness and the legitimacy of his claims. He believes that he's God's deputy on earth, that those who stand against him are traitors. And if you're a traitor in the 16th century, you deserve to die. So you combine all that with a conviction, utter conviction of righteousness, increasing suspicion, bordering at times on paranoia, if you like, this sense of royal dignity. You combine all those things. You have the perfect conditions for the king to take dramatic and decisive steps against those he perceives as working against his interest or who threaten the rule of his son or the continuation of the royal supremacy after his death. Now, I've done my best to be an, ap an apologist for Henry VIII there, which is, is quite difficult, actually. But that's the case I'd make for Henry, that a lot of the apparent cruelty he would present to us as being strong and effective royal rulership, and that he's defending not what he's created, but what he has rediscovered, which is the royal supremacy. And he's also protecting the interests of his family and of his son. So it's, it's a superiority complex wrapped up in fear and another sort of emotions, really. That's a really interesting way of putting it. Yeah, I th there's very definitely a superiority complex there, but it, there is a lot of insecurity as well. Um, and that, that plays across all sorts of different facets of, of Henry's character, as far as we can sort of recreate it from the sources available to us. It's almost sophistry, isn't it? You know, relying on fallacious arguments to try and prove a point. Yeah, the interesting thing about Henry, of course, is that, you know, we can probably see that the arguments are fallacious. But you know, as I said, Henry's very good at convincing himself that the arguments are very sound. And Henry is particularly well-read. He is somebody who's interested, I mean, when it comes particularly to theological argument and debate, he's really interested in that. He, he reckons himself an expert on it. And he's quite willing to argue about theology, you know, with the bishops in the church, for example, and reckon himself not just their equal, but ultimately he's the one in charge because he's God's deputy on earth, you know. So it's very definitely a superiority complex, but for the various reasons I've discussed, also this, this you know, various insecurities. Uh, we'll move on to another question now for Amy. This is from Lisa.s.neil from Instagram, who says, do you think Henry VIII regretted killing Thomas More, Anne Boleyn, and or Thomas Cromwell? Well, I think for what we can already gather from what Roy has said that generally no, because he always thought that he was right. So just for those who don't know who these people are, Sir Thomas More was a lawyer, a scholar, a statesman, and he was the Lord Chancellor to Henry VIII. And he was a very, very staunch Catholic. 
And because of that, um, he refused to acknowledge Henry as the supreme head of the Church of England. And he also disapproved of the annulment and the end of the marriage between um, Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII. And so as a result, he was executed in 1535. And I think with more, it's difficult because Henry had known Thomas More for most of his life. Well, for, yeah, for all of his life until he ex- executed him. And I think he would have probably missed him on a personal level, perhaps. But I think as his role as monarch, I don't think he would have regretted it. He, he couldn't have um, let Thomas More get away with that, especially when he was trying to make everyone take the oath of supremacy. And then if we move on to Anne Boleyn, so she was Henry's second wife and she was executed one year after Sir Thomas More. And she was accused of charges including adultery, incest and conspiracy against the king. And at her trial, she was found guilty and then she was executed in 1536 on the 19th of May. And I think with Anne Boleyn, I don't know, because it's so tricky. He never expressed any sort of regret to anyone. So we don't know what he felt in his heart of hearts. But the fact that he's, you know, broken with the Church of Rome and divorced his wife of 24 years and then married Anne, he must have surely felt something because it was such a dramatic ending to that passionate love affair. But as I said, we can't really know. But the one that we do know that he did express some regret about was Thomas Cromwell. So Thomas Cromwell, he was Henry's chief minister from 1532 to 1540. He helped to mastermind the English Reformation and he oversaw the dissolution of the monasteries. And his downfall came when he arranged the marriage for Henry to Anne of Cleves. And this, as well as some other, you know, sort of political wranglings going on at the time, resulted in his arrest on charges of treason and heresy. And he was executed without a trial in July of 1540. And with regards to that, Henry did actually say later on that he accuses ministers of bringing about Cromwell's downfall by pretexts and false accusations. And Henry lamented that he had put to death the most faithful servant he ever had. So that's really the only time we kind of know that he regretted a particular execution. But maybe, Roy, do you know of any other expressions of regret? I'm trying hard to think of one, Amy. Um, It's it's really interesting. I I don't actually, off the top of my head, I really don't. I mean, I think that Cromwell sort of stands out for the reasons you said. He regrets getting himself into situations where people have failed him. You know, that's the way he sees it, isn't it? But he, he doesn't seem ever to question you know, his part in their downfall, so to speak. So, no, I, I can't. Did they all meet the same fate? Was it an axe? Yeah, pretty much. Um, most of these were very high-born and high-status people. So, yeah, they were executed by axe. Anne was executed by a swordsman. So it was a cleaner execution in that regard. OK, let's move on to another question now from David Galchat on Facebook. He's curious to know, were there any dire consequences for the painter Hans Holbein the Younger for his portrait of Anne of Cleves, who you just mentioned, Amy, after Henry decided to marry Anne after he'd seen the painting of her? Well, no, not really. The, the, the most remarkable thing is that he managed to stay alive. So that's obviously an indication that things didn't go too badly for him. 
He wasn't imprisoned. He was he was actually not really blamed at all. Henry's anger was directed at Thomas Cromwell, as I've just said, who was then executed on the trumped-up charges. So after this period of time, Holbein retained his position as the king's painter. But with Cromwell gone, Cromwell had acted as one of his main patrons, so getting him work. And so with Cromwell now dead, he didn't really have any major commissions after that point. But he did continue to paint, but more on a private level. So he painted some of his most finest miniatures during this time, including those of Henry Brandon and Charles Brandon. And they were the sons of Henry VIII's great friend and favourite, Charles Brandon, the first Duke of Suffolk, and his fourth wife, Catherine Willoughby. So in a nutshell, no, Holbein was actually okay after that disastrous painting. (laughs) Now, moving on to a new question from cjamesb77 on Instagram, who's asking, what was the Tudor's take on crime and punishment? Well, ruthless, I would say. Yes, that's probably, in a a nutshell, yeah. I mean, the principle is the same as ours, isn't it? That, you know, felons and criminals should be duly punished for their actions. But, yeah, I think you, you, you used the word ruthless. I think that punishment was punitive you know they're not trying to rehabilitate people through the criminal justice system in the 16th century and the the most serious crimes felonies were punishable by death so let's remember that murder grand larceny things like that and this is an age where you might end up being hanged for stealing goods worth 12 pennies okay we've been talking about Henry VIII and treason of course now treason's interesting it's almost a case apart in the sense that That was the most heinous crime imaginable, because not only was it a crime against the king's person or that of his family, but effectively it was was argued to be a crime against God's divine order as well. And and after Henry became supreme head of the church in the Act of Supremacy of 1534, I mean, effectively, if you're trying to kill the king, you're trying to kill God's highest representative in England. So that's a big deal. And in fact, the Treason Act of 1534 even extended the definition of treason to include maliciously speaking or writing against the king. So, you know, there are lots of ways you get into trouble uh, with this one. And, you know, as Amy said a few moments ago, you know, the worst possible punishment was available for those who were guilty of treason, which would be death by hanging, hanging, drawing and quartering, which is just the most appalling punishment imaginable. One thing I, I would point out, though, I think this is interesting, is that even with most of the great treason cases of the 16th century, there, there is an apparent dedication to following the process of the law. And it's not as if you know, a Tudor monarch can just execute somebody who's offended them. They actually had to be found guilty in court at the trial or have what's known as an act of attainder passed against them. That's where effectively Parliament passes an act which says a person is guilty of treason because you know, Parliament represents the people. That's part regarded as being due process. And if you didn't follow due process, killing somebody would be murder. But by following due process, of course, you, the Tudor monarchs could never be accused of murdering people, thus allowing law to take its, the law to take its uh, course. Now, we might be tempted to say that the result was judicial murder because you know, the odds were definitely stacked up against people who were accused of treason by the crown. There's a, there's a lovely example of this, actually. It's one, one of my favourite examples of a letter written by Thomas Cromwell in 1539. And it's regarding the abbots of Reading and Glastonbury abbeys who had resisted the king's reformation. And they were to be sent 
back to their respective towns, okay, to be tried. And what Cromwell actually says is they're to be sent back to be tried and executed. You know, it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to be found guilty because the jury is going to be packed and uh, it's going to be a rigged trial, essentially. They go through, the, they, get, they follow the, the letter of the law, but probably not the spirit of it in that instance. But there's, there's almost clearly a big difference between what happens in sort of state trials, if you like, what happens for the, for the general populace. And in fairness to the system, it was fairly sophisticated. And, you, you know, and I suppose it's worth remembering that you know, there were church courts for moral misdemeanors. So even if you're a bit accused of adultery, you could be taken to a church court, for example. King's courts dealt with crimes. And there would be you know, cases would be tried by judge and jury. What's interesting about judges and jury, in the assize courts, what tended to happen was that a jury would listen to the evidence of a number of trials in succession. Okay, so imagine being a member of the jury and you sit down in the morning at court and you have the first case brought before you, you hear all the evidence, then the second case comes before you hear all the evidence, the third case comes before you hear all the evidence. You might have five cases in the day. At the end of the session, you then withdraw to reach your verdict. So you've got to remember what happened in case number one in order to deliver a verdict on it. So whether or not this is a system which resulted in the right sort of uh, verdicts is a moot question. The other interesting thing, though, is, and I think this is a sign of the success of the legal system. We know that as the 16th century progressed, the evidence suggests that there were, there were more cases brought to court. And you know, that's presumably partly because people have confidence in the legal system, but also possibly because of an increased belief in providence, which comes about after the Reformation, this notion that God will punish a sinful community and you've got to apprehend and punish criminals because if you don't, God will do the punishing for you. That could be bad for all of us. But the final thing, and I promise I'll be quiet after this because I've waxed lyrical on this. The really key thing to remember is particularly in the last quarter of the 16th century, it's a time of significant economic distress. There are poor harvests. There are all sorts of sicknesses going around, pandemics. And these are the sorts of social conditions which would have increased people's resorting to crime out of desperation. So perhaps there's another reason why we see court cases increasing as the 16th century progresses, because people are more desperate. Mike Finden, I think it is, or Finadon, I'm not sure, from Facebook, is keen to know why the royal family kept trusting the Howards, who had a major impact on the crown and the history of England. So Mike knows quite a lot there, I think, in his loaded question. Amy, what's your answer? Yeah, well, the Howard family, even today, so it's a famous aristocratic family whose head, the Duke of Norfolk, is to this day the Premier Duke and hereditary Earl Marshal of England. So during the Tudor era, though, the Howard family were particularly important. They were one of the most powerful families in the country. And I think that they were closely associated with the royal family due to their wealth and influence. And they were also very clever at seeking out high offices so that they could gain more favour, money, land, and also like the ear of the monarch, the king or queen who is in power. And I think that the Howards were also very confident and at times very arrogant. And because they were well connected and capable, the Tudors sort of, you know, had them in their circle. And so it was easy to use the Howards. And then at the same time, the Howards were using them. So I think it's a bit of back and forth between the two families. However, sometimes the Howards were a bit too power hungry and this often resulted in them overstepping the line. So the third Duke of Norfolk, for example, 
he pushed his two nieces, so that was Anne Boleyn and then Catherine Howard, into the path of Henry VIII. And both of these women caught Henry's eye and then they became his queen, his queen, so the second wife and then his fifth wife. And as I think we've already heard before, the third duke was actually later imprisoned in the Tower of London, as was his son, who had used the royal arms. But he, the third duke, actually managed to avoid execution, but his son was executed. So although they played this dangerous game, they didn't always win. And it seems as though the Tudors, they were just all sort of in that mix of really high, powerful families that all sort of got along and didn't get along, sometimes got executed and sometimes didn't. So yeah, it was just one of those families, I think. Interesting, because you think that Henry would go, hang on a second, you've set me up with Anne Boleyn. I've had to cut her head off. Mm -hmm. And now you're giving me Catherine Howard. And I've got to cut her head off as well, because she's been a traitor. Because it's it's divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived, isn't it? Yes, that's right. It is fascinating that two nieces, you know, two women from the same family rose up to such a high high status, Queen of England, and then both were executed at a later date on charges of adultery, actually. So it's fascinating. I At some point, I do feel sorry for them as well, because they were sort of, you know, being pushed into the path of Henry VIII. And they were the ones who actually paid for it in the end, not their uncle. Yes, fascinating. How did Catherine Howard actually get into trouble? Well, basically, she was very young when she married Henry VIII. We don't quite know when she was born, but she was in her teens for sure. And somebody found out and left a, I think it was a note or something for Henry to find that said that Catherine was not pure. She wasn't a virgin when she had been, when she married the king. And it was always expected that the bride should be a virgin. And so that was obviously was a red flag to Henry. And she was also supposed to have had an affair whilst married to the king with a courtier called Thomas Culpepper. And as a result, Henry just saw red, I think, and didn't give her. That was it. That was the end of it. She was no longer this pure young thing. In his mind, she was not trustworthy. And as a result, you know, off with her head, as was his way. Didn't it happen on a royal progress as well? Yes, I think you're right. I can't remember what the date was of that. But yes, I think something along those lines. She, I think, pleaded that it wasn't sort of a physical relationship. But who knows? I imagine that she didn't exactly enjoy being married to the middle-aged king. And he was pretty large at this point. He had an ulcerated leg and he wasn't the most attractive of men. So perhaps she did have an affair after all. That leads us nicely on to our next section about Henry VIII's wives and children. So how many children did Henry VIII have besides the ones with his wives? This is a question from Kotsi Motsi through Instagram, Amy. Yes, so uh, Henry VIII, he had three legitimate children that you know we know, Mary, Edward and Elizabeth by his three different wives and they each in turn succeeded to the throne. But besides those... Henry had one acknowledged illegitimate child called Henry Fitzroy, and he was born in 1519 and was the son of his uh, Henry VIII's mistress called Bessie Blount. And at the age of six, Henry Fitzroy was made the Earl of Nottingham, and then he was made the Duke of both Richmond and Somerset. And he was fully acknowledged. Um, at one point, there are reports that Henry sh- took his little son to court and showed him off because 
he proved that he could sire an heir. He could have a boy. And so he was incredibly excited by this. And there was some speculation, particularly amongst some of the ambassadors later on, especially after Henry Fitzroy had been given these dukedoms, that maybe he might be added to the line of succession. But this never came to be because Henry Fitzroy died very suddenly at the age of 17 of consumption. So that was the end of that. And then besides Henry Fitzroy, Henry VIII had, um, he may have had up to six other illegitimate children, but he didn't acknowledge any of these. So it's very difficult to know for sure. And two of these may have been Catherine and Henry Carey, and they were the children of Mary Boleyn, who was the sister of Anne Boleyn, And this is one of the women that Henry had had an affair with before he fell in love with Anne Boleyn. So all very incestuous, but potentially up to six other children. You mentioned consumption, which I think these days we'll probably call tuberculosis, which is this lung disease, isn't it? And that's also the disease that claimed the life of Henry's actual heir, the one who's legitimate, Edward. He died of tuberculosis, didn't he? Yes, that's right. He was quite ill for quite some time during his teenage years. So yeah, that was a great blow to the Tudor dynasty. Absolutely. Henry VIII's first wife, as we've been talking about, was Catherine of Aragon from Spain. And was she Henry's most intelligent wife is a question from Susanna Espanol on Instagram. So um, I think we've got uh, a lot of Spaniards in the house today. (laughs) Yeah, I think Catherine of Aragon was certainly a very accomplished queen. As a child, she'd been given a really good princely education. She had also immersed herself in the developing scholarship of the Renaissance, and she mastered written and spoken Latin as well as the modern languages. As a result, once she was in England, she was able to hold her own with some of the top humanists of the day, among them the Dutchman Erasmus. So she really was, she was intelligent and I think she was brought up to be a queen and she knew her worth and she knew how to act a queen. And so that's one of the reasons why I think she just lasted so long because she was just excellent at her job. But I don't think we can neglect some of the other queens. So I'm just going to talk about Anne Boleyn and Catherine Parr as well. So Anne Boleyn, she's always known for being, you know, the queen who sort of stole Henry away from Catherine of Aragon. But she herself was also, she was well educated. She was an able musician. She could speak fluent French and she read very widely. And she also read some books that were banned at the time in England, such as William Tyndale's The Obedience of a Christian Man. And in true Anne style, she went on to urge the king to read this. Whereas if she had been, if the king hadn't have accepted it, and he could very well have had her put in the tower because this was a book that was absolutely a no-no at the time. And then finally... We have Catherine Parr, and I I really do like Catherine Parr because she's noted for being intelligent, but she's also a published author, which is pretty impressive. So in 1544, she published her first book, which is called Psalms or Prayers, and she published that anonymously. But then her second book, which was called Prayers or Meditations, which was published in 1545, was the first book to be published by an English woman under her own name. So that is a highly significant achievement. And I think it really shows that she was intelligent and she really, you know, she believed in getting her knowledge out there for not necessarily the masses, but at least in printed form. 
And then she also published a third book in 1547. So I think those three queens are certainly one of some of the most intelligent ones. Yes, I'd love to know what was being said in court by Catherine of Aragon around the time of Henry wanting his annulment. I'd love to know what her sort of arguments against that would have been. That moves us on to the next question, actually. And many people might be wondering, you know, if Henry VIII can set up his own church and split from the Pope in Rome to serve his own ends, why didn't he also change the law to legitimise his bastard son, Henry Fitzroy? This is a question from Vanessa Arnold on Facebook. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And it's obviously a question which Henry VIII himself thought about because we think that he did exactly that. As Amy just was telling us just a moment ago, you know, Henry Fitzroy is the, the illegitimate son of Henry and Elizabeth Blount. He's indisputably illegitimate, but that doesn't matter in one sense because Henry has ancestors who were illegitimate but have been legitimised by Parliament. Remember we were talking about the Beauforts, the um, ancestors of his... Um, Henry VII's mother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, well, they were illegitimate and Parliament had legitimised them, albeit with the proviso that they couldn't actually transmit a claim to the throne, which the Tudors managed to forget about quite nicely. But there was a precedent for this. What's interesting is that in 1536, following the execution of Anne Boleyn, there's a second act of succession passed by Parliament. And this act of succession enabled the king, in the event of his not having any legitimate heirs, to choose and to appoint his successor by what were known as letters patent or, or in his will. So this is exactly the sort of law Vanessa has in mind when she asked this question. Effectively, the mechanism was there for Henry to say in his will that Henry Fitzroy would be heir to the throne in the event of him not having any legitimate heirs. Because as Amy's just described, uh, this all comes to naught because Henry Fitzroy dies in the same year, in 1536. Okay, thank you, Roy. Back to a wives question now. And Gemma Horan on Instagram wants to know if it's true that Henry VIII loved Jane Seymour the most. What do you think, Amy? Well, Jane Seymour is commonly regarded as Henry's favourite wife, but this is due to the fact that she gave him his long-awaited heir, Edward. So I think he was—he felt like he'd found the fa- he's got the family unit, he's got his heir, he's got son. Maybe he did really love her because of that. It must have been such a sense of relief. Another indication that he might truly have loved her the most is that he was buried next to Jane, which would suggest that he did hold her in great esteem. But I think we can't just look at Jane. We have to look at Catherine of Aragon because he was married to her for the longest time, 24 years. That had been a relatively happy marriage. It's often said that he loved and respected her the most out of all of his queens. And had she borne him a son, he may never have, well, he wouldn't have needed to divorce her. He could have had mistresses as he'd done before, but he wouldn't have needed to break with Rome and actually establish himself as, you know, the supreme head of the church. So it's a lot of what ifs here. And then finally, I think we should also have a quick look at Anne Boleyn, because this is the woman that he sort of blew everything up for. You know, he had such a passion for her. And I think he had the most passionate love for her, although it did kind of fizzle out fairly quickly after they married. So, yeah, I'm not sure. I think he had different types of love for each of his wives. And perhaps the most dramatic was Anne. The longest and probably the happiest was, I think, Catherine of Aragon. And Jane Seymour was that amazing woman who gave him his heir. So, yeah, combination of all three, I think. 
What about relationships with his offspring? Because Gemma has a follow-up question about whether Henry bonded with his children or whether he even had time to bond with them. What do you think, Roy? Yeah, I, I love this question. I mean, if you were making a sitcom, okay, about Henry VIII and his family, you can imagine the scene, can't you, where the end of a long day, you know, Henry VIII has had a hard day being king, so he's sitting down in the corner playing his lute and perhaps composing the, you know, the next song to follow up with pastime and good company. You've got Catherine Parr in the other end of the room writing the next bit of her prayer book. And you've got the royal children in between them, all, all together as a happy family, perhaps playing cards or the ver- Tudor version of backgammon, something like that. And of course, that happy family, you'd imagine that sitcom scenario, never existed. <laughs> yeah, it just didn't happen. Um, and really, the reason for that is just as Henry's queens had their own households, so too did Henry's children. And when they were growing up, unlike Henry after 1502, when he's living close with his father, Henry's children live apart from court for the most part. You know, they come to court for important occasions, but for the most part, they're living separate lives in separate households away from the king. And they'd have to learn that at an early age. We know, for example, that Princess Elizabeth, as she was then, was sent away from court to Hatfield in December 1533. She's only born in September of 1533. So she, you know, she's about three months old, and she's sent away from the royal court to live at Hatfield. And other of the children were sent to other parts of the country. So at nine years old, Mary, the future Mary I, she's sent to Ludlow Castle to head up a council of the Welsh marshes. So they grow up separated from their father. They come to court for important occasions. They see him. They're shown off to ambassadors. They might be at court over at Christmas or Easter, grand occasions. For the most part, they're living away from court. But there is evidence of paternal bonding. It tends to happen a little bit later in life. And I think the clearest evidence for this is actually, surprisingly, with Mary. Mary, who is discounted as a Tudor monarch so often. Mary had such an appalling time with her father when he had his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, her mother annulled. He was absolutely awful to Mary. He refused Mary to go and see her dying mother and act in the most cruel manner imaginable. But once she'd submitted to Henry and accepted that his marriage to her mother didn't exist, suddenly this new relationship kindled and blossomed. And in fact, Mary ends up spending a lot of time at court from 1537 onward. She's regularly at court. She, and she was particularly close to Catherine Parr, Henry's final queen. Edward and Elizabeth, being a little bit younger, their households are maintained separate from the court, so they visit less frequently. But they still turn up occasionally. When they come to court, they go to a place like Hampton Court, for example, they have their separate households in, in different parts of the palace. So I suppose, in conclusion, the answer to the question is that time for bonding would have been limited. But what's interesting is that all three of Henry's children very obviously revered the memory of their father after his death. Although I have to say that I suspect that's probably because all three of them inherited a great deal of his sense of royal dignity and his majesty as well. I'd love to know what was going through Mary Tudor's head, you know, while being friends with Catherine Parr, the final wife, the sixth wife as well, because, you know, she would have seen all the wives by that point. Yes. Including her own mother, Catherine of Aragon. So I just find that really strange. Well, you know, is, is it so strange? I mean, it's the time, you know, the, the person she really didn't like was Anne Boleyn, because Anne Boleyn is the person who displaced her mother, you know, until she was forced to submit 
to the royal point of view that Henry's marriage to her mother was null and void. She just regarded Anne Boleyn effectively as an adulteress who had taken the king out of his true wedlock with her mother. But for people like Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard, Catherine Parr, these are people with whom she has no personal animus because, of course, Catherine of Aragon died in 1536. And that means that these are people whom, as far as she's concerned, she might not agree with the way in which Henry's church is developing, but Henry is at liberty to marry who he likes after the death of her mother. Mm. I mean, that whole idea of how she would have thought about those relationships just opens up another can of worms, which is, how did these people even function? It sounds completely dysfunctional, doesn't it? I mean, it's not the sort of family units that you would expect to sort of work well. I think the fact that Henry VIII um, didn't have his father around much probably filtered down to his children as well. Um, They didn't have much contact with their father. So it sounds like history is repeating itself a little bit. Yeah, well, remember, though, in the years immediately preceding Henry's becoming king, in fact, after Prince Arthur's death, Henry had spent a lot of time with his father. So it's actually quite different that, you know, as a teenager, Henry VIII, or the future Henry VIII, is in his father's shadow, whereas that's different for the way he treats his children. I mean, the idea of it being a dysfunctional family, what's interesting in that regard, of course, is what happens after Henry VIII's death, where up until 1547, the three children all get on with each other, at least superficially well. But of course, you know, once Edward becomes king and develops his own personality, I mean, he dies young, but you know, even as a teenager, you can see a sort of embryonic Henry VIII in development here and starts pushing, and the people around him pushing the church in England in a far more Protestant direction than had been the case in Henry VIII's time. Mary refuses to accept that. And you can see all sorts of frictions between Edward and Mary at that point. And then, of course, when Mary becomes queen, she regards Elizabeth as a, as a threat. And when there's a rebellion, Wyatt's rebellion in the early years of Mary's reign, she thinks Elizabeth may be implicated in that. And Elizabeth ends up spending some time at the Tower of London as a consequence. So that dysfunctionality is certainly expressed very clearly after Henry VIII's death. But in a sense, during Henry's lifetime, they managed to hold it together. Okay, let's move on to um, another thing that families do, apart from squabble, and that's eat together, I hope. So HJ Fevs, I think, from Instagram asks, what was the Tudor's favourite food, Amy? The Tudor court ate a meat-heavy diet, so I'd say meat was probably their favourite. They ate calves, pigs, rabbit, badger, beaver, ox... And all the birds, like including chicken, pheasant, pigeons, partridge, sparrows even. And so these would have been roasted and boiled or served in pies. And the wealthier Tudors would also have eaten more expensive meats, such as swan and peacock, geese and wild boar. And venison, though, was the most exclusive. And the king or queen would have gone hunting in their deer parks with their nobles to enjoy you know, that sport as well. And for banquets, more unusual items such as eel and porpoise could often be on the menu. And when these banquets took place, the sweet dishes would often be served alongside the savoury. And they loved dressing everything in spices and fruit. So it was a very different sort of palate back then. They also developed a real love of sugar during this time and their teeth suffered as a result. I think Elizabeth I famously had terrible black teeth because she had such a love of sugar. If we think of alcohol, they loved it, of course. Water was considered unhealthy 
and it was unfit for drinking and so everyone drank ale including children which was often brewed without hops so it wasn't particularly alcoholic but the rich of course they drank wine imported from france or germany and they also really loved their sweet wine so they called it malmsey and a lot of that was imported from the mediterranean during this time such as cyprus at Christmas time, then, how did they eat? Because the adventures of underscore Alex from Instagram wants to know the answer to that one. Well, they ate a lot. So at the Tudor Royal Court, I think more was more. They just loved everything. So the main centerpiece at Christmas time would have probably been a boar's head, which was displayed on a platter, smothered in mustard, with an apple stuffed into its mouth. And this was normally sort of could have been gilded or decorated to look like a, an amazing centerpiece. And then along with that, they ate their seasonal favorite, which was brawn. And that was a fatty, the fatty cuts of a, of a boar or a pig if they couldn't get a boar. And this was often cooked in wine and served sliced and spiced and garnished with gilded rosemary, bay leaves, fruits and spices. So again, a really interesting palette. But along with this, they also enjoyed a delicacy called the Tudor Christmas pie, which was a creation not for the faint of heart because it consisted of a five bird roast. So turkeys came into popularity during the Tudor period and this was enjoyed at Christmas. And the turkey would be stuffed with a goose, which would be stuffed with a chicken or a pheasant. And then that would be stuffed with a partridge and then stuffed with a pigeon. And all of that would have been placed into a pastry called a coffin because it was like this mammoth pie. So they just loved all of their food. Oh, it's just excessive, isn't it? And this is, <laughs> this is at the higher end of society. Yes. So in the king's household. That's right. Moving on to some Tudor pastimes then, let's bring back Roy for the first one here. Little underscore cyclist from Instagram asks, what exercise did the Tudors do? I mean, after listening to what Amy's just said, you think they'd need to, wouldn't you? I think the honest answer actually is that if we were to ask most people in the 16th century, did they do enough exercise? They'd laugh in our faces and, and tell us, of course they do, because in a largely agricultural country, you know, hard physical work was what most people experienced on an almost daily basis. You know, they got that, they exercise through their work. And, and the same is true for those people involved in the industry of the time. It's an age before mechanized machinery. So, you know, they're going to be working very hard. You know, Tudor life was far less sedentary than ours. And it's an age when, you know, virtually every journey involved physical effort. So, you know, I imagine for the, the mass of the population, as I say, you know, they, they, they would just say to us, you know, don't be ridiculous. We do plenty of exercise. It's only a small proportion of the population for whom exercise would have to be regarded as a luxury. It's something you would have to do because you didn't have to do any physical work. And in a sense, that's a definition of the gentry and the aristocracy of this time, isn't it? They don't actually have to do any physical work and therefore they have to look for exercise to fill up some of their time instead. And I'm going to give you a Tudor quote now. I'm going to give you something straight from Henry VIII's court, which is Something written down by a person called Sir Thomas Eliot, and he wrote a book called The Book of the Governor. And I'm sure you've got a copy on your shelf, Charles, because I think everybody should do. The Book of the Governor was basically a sort of a book setting out how an ideal aristocrat or gentleman should be brought up. It was sort of a guidance to good education, all the rest of it. And he spends a bit of time talking about how important it is for people to study. But he then says, it is to be considered that continual study without some manner of exercise 
shortly exhausteth the spirit's vital, and hindereth natural decoction and digestion, whereby man's body is the sooner corrupted and brought into divers sicknesses, and finally the life is thereby made shorter. Where contrarywise, by exercise, which is a vehement motion, the health of man is preserved and his strength increased, for as much the members by moving and mutual touching do wax more hard, and natural heat in all the body is thereby augmented. So what Sir Thomas Elliot is telling us is get off your backsides if you're doing too much studying and go out and do some exercise instead. So for the elite, they're looking for things to do. And, you know, if you were at Henry VIII's court, I mean, famously, Henry enjoyed wrestling, didn't he? He enjoyed martial arts of the time. So if you're a member of the elite, you might be spending your time physically training for the joust or for combat on foot as part of a tournament, that sort of thing. Moving outside the elite, though, there is a form of exercise which all men were supposed to undertake, and that's because Henry VIII continued the medieval practice of making it legally obligatory for men to practice shooting longbows. So in 1511, he passed an act which confirmed this tradition, and all fathers were to provide their sons between the ages of 7 and 17 with a bow and two arrows, and all men up to the age of 60 had to provide themselves with a bow and four arrows, and they were expected to practice regularly. And in fact, that act actually says that sports such as tennis and bowls should be forbidden so that those men could practice their archery. But there's one other form of exercise, which I think is, again, links the population, links people from the lowest part of the population, people right at the top of society, and that's dancing. And we know that dancing was enjoyed by the populace at large because, particularly in the later 16th century, you get lots of complaints about it from priests and clerics and godly people complaining about people dancing during church service times, for example. And the descriptions you get are of large organized events, often outdoors, where it is a dangerous thing. The young of both sexes come to mix together and dance in energetic forms. And of course, the higher up the social scale you go, the more sophisticated the forms of dancing you would find. And when you get to the royal court, you get the most sophisticated altogether. But there's still energetic dances. And there's a lovely example of this and a dance called the Galliard, which in involved a lot of energetic movement and jumping around. And Queen Elizabeth I was described as dancing six or seven Galliards in the morning, besides music and singing as an ordinary exercise. And she's even recorded as dancing two Galliards in 1602, the year before her death. And in doing that, she's actually following her father, Henry VIII, who, according to the Milanese ambassador, back in 1515, exercised himself daily by dancing. So that's what we should be doing. We should all be dancing. That's remarkable. I've got images now in my head of both of those monarchs jumping out of bed and doing a bit of a jig or something <laughs> in the mornings. But uh, anyway, that's interesting. Horse riding, I suppose, you could count as exercise as well, couldn't you? Because um, yeah. I think both Elizabeth and Henry really enjoyed horseback riding. They did. I mean, H Henry... Well, he particularly enjoyed hunting. Henry was renowned in the 15-teens, 15-20s for spending whole days in the saddle and tiring out numbers, you know, numbers of horses in the process going out hunting. So, yes, yeah, so that, that, that was a very popular pastime mm. uh, for people at the top of society. Yeah. And that sort of feeds into our next question as well, which is from Jolly's on Instagram. And it looks at sort of exercise with a competitive edge. So what sports were enjoyed during the Tudor period? 
Well, I suppose, again, competitive sports primarily are things for the gentry and the aristocracy and some of the things we've mentioned already. So jousting and martial sports would be enjoyed by the elites. And yeah, you, know, you had to be a member of the elite to actually be able to take part, partly, of course, because it costs so much money to actually have all the equipment to do so. The other sport I've already mentioned, of course, is tennis. And, you know, you would find tennis courts in many of the larger royal houses. It's a game, you know, I think it's called real tennis today, isn't it? It's sort of a bit like a combination of tennis and squash, as far as we're concerned. And, you know, you have descriptions of, well, Henry VIII, for example, having purpose-constructed black velvet tennis suits being constructed with lovely velvet shoes as well for him to perform in. There's one description, I've his ambassador is now, but he, he describes Henry playing tennis in just his shirt, his linen shirt, and that the king's skin is shining through the shirt of the lovely rosy hue. So I suppose one of the, one of the things these things did, as, as well as being a means of exercise, for somebody like Henry VIII, it's also a really good way of showing off his physical prowess and also demonstrating that he's healthy. You know, in an age before you know, mass communication, it's a good way of, of showing to people at court the king is in good health, if you like. I've mentioned hunting, haven't we? You know, not so much sports, but more competitive games were very popular. You know, and I'm afraid some of these would include things we'd regard as being really horrible, um, like bear baiting and cockfighting. They'd be regarded as spectacles which you could gamble, for example. We also had bowling, which I've mentioned already. You have bowling alleys in, in the city of London, for example. And card, dice and table games were popular at court and, and elsewhere as well. You know, dominoes, for example, is played in the 16th century. They're not quite sports, but they're, you know, they're competitive games that you know, people would gamble lots of money on. Do the Tudors play football, Roy? This is a question from TwinJack1 on Instagram. Football? Yes, they did, but not football as we know it. <laughs> I think FIFA would be astounded and appalled at the, uh, the sort of football which is uh, played in England in, in, in the Tudor period. In fact, Sir Thomas Elliot, that book I've just been quoted, The Governor, he actually says of football that there's nothing but beastly fury and extreme violence whereof proceedeth hurt. So imagine being a referee in a match like that. And basically, there were few, if any, fixed rules. And what you might find would be, for example, two villages playing against each other. And the idea was that you had to get the ball into a particular part of the other the, the opponent's village. And you could pick up the ball as well as kick it. And from the descriptions were given of these games, it's clear that this was an opportunity to, how can you put it, to sort of burn off a lot of excess energy and it was an occasion for sort of rowdy and spirited physical exertion. That's probably the best, most polite way of putting it. On the subject of Tudor pastimes, did the Tudors keep pets? This is a question from Texas underscore Libby from Instagram. Yes, they did. So um, they had a, some kind of different types of pets than we might have today, such as pet squirrels and ferrets. But they also loved dogs, as we do today. So Henry VIII particularly liked dogs, especially beagles, spaniels and greyhounds. And on one occasion, two of his dogs, called Cut and Bull, got lost and he paid out quite a large sum for the time of nearly 15 shillings in rewards to get them brought back. So he clearly did have some favourite pets. Some more exotic pets were also around. So Catherine of Aragon had a pet monkey. She was actually painted with her pet monkey in 1525 in a little miniature and the little monkey is reaching up towards her cross and even though she is depicted sort of trying to give him a coin and this is said to symbolize that faith over greed is you know the better option 
and 1525 is like a time when it might have been a bit you know she's trying to say how catholic she was how important that was and also the fact that henry didn't necessarily need to ditch her for anne boleyn so it's always very interesting but of course at this time they also had i think it's at this time but roy you can come in if you know more about the exotic animals in the tower of london what time did that date from that dates from the reign of Henry III, I think. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're definitely there in this period, the, sort of the royal menagerie. Yeah, because an, an elephant is brought to England in the 13th century, isn't it? Isn't that right? <laughs> I, think I think so. so. Something yeah. like that, yes. So yeah, they also had these exotic animals, wild animals, kept in the Tower of London, which people could go and see. And obviously the royals would go and see it. So a whole host of things there with regards to pets and animals. A few final questions to end with then. Is there an oft-quoted fact about the Tudors that is actually not true? A question from Chris Wood via Twitter, Roy. Okay, Chris, that's a a good question. There's certain things which are put out there which you find expressed in popular media still about the Tudors. And there are two in particular about Henry VIII I think I'm going to concentrate on here. This is a bit unsavoury, I'm afraid, Charles, but one is you often see it recorded that Henry VIII was syphilitic, that he had a sexually transmitted disease, and that that's one of the reasons, that's one of the causes of his death. And we can be pretty sure that that's not the case, because we do have records of the medicine which was administered to Henry, and those records don't contain mention of mercury, and that would have been the standard treatment for a condition like that, and Henry's never treated with that. And whilst, you know, he, he had some horrible things wrong with him, which, you know, Amy's mentioned his ulcerated legs earlier, well, we can be fairly sure, I think, that he did. He wasn't syphilitic. So there, there, there's something we can put to one side. Moving away from the scurrilous, the other thing you often still see reported about Henry VIII is that he founded the Protestant Church of England. And, of course, the word Protestant doesn't really emerge until late in Henry's reign, but everything it represented and meant is something which Henry would have found anathema. Henry, as far as he was concerned, was a good Catholic. Now, his former Catholicism was slightly different to the uh, sort of former Catholicism which, for example, Sir Thomas More wanted to see followed. But Henry was definitely not a Protestant. He didn't adopt some of the central tenets of Protestantism. And therefore, you know, that is one fact you sometimes see reported, which I think we can question put aside straight away okay let's bring in a penultimate question from kennedy walker from facebook who asks what would have been the long-term impact on catholicism in england if edward the sixth had lived longer mm, there's one of the, the great what ifs if edward the sixth had lived longer lots of things would have been different they presumably lived longer would have got married would have had children no queen mary no Queen Elizabeth, what a different England it would have been. And of course, if there was no Mary on the throne, then you wouldn't have had the short-lived Catholic revival of the 1550s. Mary was queen between 1553 and 1558. And despite her posthumous reputation as Bloody Mary, actually did a fairly good job of re-establishing Catholicism as a religion of this country. So that wouldn't have happened if Edward had lived longer and she hadn't become a queen. There's actually a, a really interesting follow-up to this which is you know what would have happened to protestant england if edward had lived longer as well when elizabeth i becomes queen her church is protestant it's very much in the mold of edward the sixth but what's interesting is that you know there's a sense in which edward's bishops have been you know sort of 
plugged into the forefront of the European Reformation and Reformed thinking. And there is a sense in which you know Elizabeth's church never made up the lost ground, that it was never quite as hot as Edward's church, if you like. I think it's interesting, though, that um, I think there might have been a resurgence in Catholicism if Edward was pushing a harder Protestant line, if, if he had lived longer. I think it might have naturally just seesawed the other way. Well, there's always a possibility that might happen, that you might have uprisings, and that there was an uprising in Edward's reign, which was fueled by resentment at the direction of, of travel of religious policy. That happened in 1549 and in the western counties of England and in Cornwall. There was a very major uprising, and that was one of the things which led to the downfall of Protector Somerset, the king's uncle, who was the protector of the realm whilst Edward was a young boy. And that was put down rather ruthlessly. So there was that danger. But what's interesting is that by the time the second prayer book comes out, and towards the closing years of Edward's reign, there is a sense in which Edward's church is very definitely marching the direction of very advanced reformed thought, as you would find on the continent, and inviting reformers from the continent into England as well. And, you know, we can't tell, can we, how people would embrace that. But if Edward was king for a number of decades, then I think the chances are, yeah, that those religious changes would have been rooted down. And you know, provided there wasn't another uprising, then they would have become established. And all oh, that's effectively what happens in Elizabeth's reign. The church she establishes is essentially Edward's church. There's some small changes, but it's essentially Edward's church. And what's fascinating is that a very Catholic England becomes a vehemently anti-Catholic England in the second half of the 16th century. It's always interesting to debate those sorts of aspects of history, isn't it? Well, here's another debatable debate. Harrison underscore C2004 on Instagram wants to know, finally, who was the best Tudor monarch? Well, of course, this depends on how you define best. Although Harrison says that he thinks that Henry VIII, uh, sorry, Henry VII was the best. So what are your thoughts, Amy? Well, I certainly agree that Henry VII was a, a successful monarch, it's particularly in securing and founding the Tudor dynasty and effectively ending the War of Roses. So I agree with that. But I think my personal favourite is Elizabeth I, because she reigned, she was the Tudor that reigned the longest. She reigned for 45 years. And during her reign, England emerged as a world power and her presence helped to unify the country against foreign enemies. Her long reign also witnessed a number of notable achievements, such as her sort of new moderate religious settlement. She was pretty involved with overseas expansion. We had some great you know, individuals like Sir Walter Raleigh traveling around the world. We also had the great victory over the Spanish Armada, which we always like to celebrate today. And she also oversaw a flowering of cultural life in England. And this was very much epitomized by Shakespeare. So as a result of all of these amazing achievements, I think it's little wonder that her reign has been described as a golden age. What are your thoughts, Roy? Oh, it's, I, I think it's pretty hard to, to argue with that, really. I think if you had all the Tudors lined up in front of you, you know, they all make competing claims, wouldn't they? And, you know, yeah, Henry VII and restoring peace and ending the wars. I suppose Henry VIII would say, well, yeah, as I said, said earlier, he'd established the royal supremacy and that's the big change, you know, taking England outside of the uh, 
tyranny of Rome, as he would have regarded it. And of course, that continues in Elizabeth's reign. And and and, and he was, you know, if that, I, I hadn't done that, then would have would have happened without me. I mean, I suppose the, the interesting thing for me is that when you look at Elizabeth's reign, she becomes more popular in the years following her death. It's it's one of those things where people look back on events in the 17th century. Her memory is revered in a very very definitely, but in a, in a way which is slightly at odds with the way in which she was held in the actual closing years of her reign itself. You know, as I said earlier, it was a time of great economic crisis and difficulty. And there was a lot of political turmoil as well. In fact, there's a rebellion fairly close to the end of uh, Elizabeth's reign led by the Earl of Essex. But in the years, in the, in the 17th century, people look back to the reign of Elizabeth I as this golden age of the way Amy suggested. And I think, you know, culturally, you know, we still do, don't we? So, you know, I, I'm happy to, to agree with Amy on that one, that, you know, Elizabeth is perhaps, perhaps the best Tudor monarch. But, you know, I'm sure if they're all here, they'd be shouting at us. And some of us would be looking with suspicion and quoting the act of treason at me right now. Well, yes, I think we'd all have to be worried about our heads, wouldn't we? They probably would have banned podcasts if they were around at that time. Anyway, well, that brings our podcast on everything you wanted to know about the Tudors to a conclusion. So thank you very much both for your time and your respective insights. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be looking back at the history of politics, diplomacy and empire at Osborne, Queen Victoria's home on the Isle of Wight. The more kindly the Queen looked upon you, the further into the residence you would be allowed to go. So the Queen could offer that level of hospitality, but she could also deny it. And it was a way of her communicating to her prime ministers what her thoughts and feelings were at the time. Thanks for listening. See you next time.